0: We've been to all four corners of Britain in our quest to interview the great and good of entertainment. Comics, actors, writers, politicians, singers, dancers and choreographers. It doesn't matter who they are. They've all given me their own take on the world they live in and have, in their own way, helped to define what makes Britain great. So join me and my assistants as we get another insight into the marvellous and enigmatic world of showbiz, here on Beyond the Title.
1: Writer, comedian and playwright Ben Elton burst onto the entertainment scene in the midst of the alternative comedy revolution of the early 1980s, co-writing the cult anarchic sitcom The Young Ones alongside Rick Mayall and Lise Mayer. In 1986, Elton was put forward to update the variety format for 80s Britain, when he secured a presenting role on Channel 4's Saturday Live, which made stars of Harry Enfield, Alexei Sale and French and Saunders. With his on-screen popularity growing, Ben was recruited by friend Richard Curtis to collaborate on the writing of the second series of the cult BBC Two sitcom Blackadder, and remained a lead writer on the programme for the following three series. A reunion with Rowan Atkinson in the mid-90s resulted in the short-lived BBC sitcom The Thin Blue Line, followed by securing his own BBC One series, alongside the legendary Ronnie Corbett. I caught up with a man of many talents to talk comedy, theatre and life back on the road. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr Ben Elton. So, um, you've recently announced the theatrical adaptation of your critically acclaimed BBC2 sitcom Upstart Crow. What was the process of making a TV sitcom fit for stage?
2: Well, with Upstart Crow, it was particularly exhilarating one, because it was a sitcom about the world's greatest dramatist, or certainly greatest dramatist in the English language. I'm always a bit nervous about saying the world's greatest, because, you know, I haven't read any, any Turkish or <laughs> Russian, you know. Yeah. Anyway, um, it, it was a thrilling challenge, and um, it gave me a, a, a whole new palette to play with. And, and that, it's very much not an adaptation of the sitcom. I mean, it, it is, as many of the characters are there, not all, we couldn't have them all in it. Um, but I was able to play further with the Shakespearean conventions that I mess around with in the, in the sitcom itself, because we're in a theatre. So the play, which is a couple of years of, of Will's life... Um, is presented slightly more in the manner of a Shakespeare play. I mean, a two identical twins turn up, um, you know, by remarkable coincidence, having been divided at birth. That sort of fun, which you couldn't really do in a TV sitcom, because there's an essential naturalism to what to Upstart Crow. It's a very traditional BBC sitcom format. It's in its format, it's like Dad's Army. It's it's it purports to be basically real life, although obviously it's a massively Exaggerated, funny version of it. So the idea of two people who don't look remotely the same being just taken for identical is not something I could do on the telly, but I can do it on stage. So it's that, a long answer, and that is this: is that it, it was hard, very hard work, um, but a wonderful challenge. And it's set ten years in. in it's set ten years afterwards, so Shakespeare's daughters have grown up. It's 1605. There's a new king on the tr- throne. Very interesting period in Shakespeare's life. Two years into the first to James's um, reign in England, and um, he's really only written *Measure for Measure* and *As You Like It*. Two fairly minor, you know, basically, you know, nothing like as good as his previous work. And and I have it at this point the king's noticed. You know, you write *Romeo and Juliet* and *The Merchant of Venice* and *Henry V* for the Queen Queen Elizabeth, and you write two howling clusterfucks of extremely non-funny comedy. ...based on the same mistaken identity gags you always do. So that's how it starts. He needs a new play and he needs inspiration for a new play. And what's interesting is, in his own life, he must have found some... ...because he's about to enter one of the most extraordinary periods of his right life. He's about to write King Lear and Cleopatra, and the Tempe... ...he's very quickly, uh, in succession, going to write some of his greatest work. So I have fun about why would it be that he would have had such a shit two years and why is he about to have such an extraordinary three or four years, so.
1: Okay. Um, So you arrived on the comedy scene right at the very beginning of the alternative revolution. How did the socio-economic and political climate help with this subtle shift in entertainment?
2: Well, um, you know, I would never wish anybody to live in um, divided and difficult times, but I think they are good for art. Uh, I think when everybody's feeling very comfortable, um, perhaps there isn 't such an impetus to produce you know work that really that really shocks and and and, and, and confronts because we 're all feeling comfortable i mean certainly, I think the greatest period of of art in all western culture almost was the was the weimar Republic in berlin the the ten ten or twelve years between the First World War and the Nazis, in which Berlin was in absolute, a constant state of revolution, starvation, insane inflation and extreme extremism in its politics. You know, running street battles uh, between the Nazis and the communists, etc. Produced a flowering of art and sciences, really, with which you've got to go back to the ancient Athens to find another city. And I don't quite know why they, how they had such an amazing time of art, but... But really, that 12 years, from the Bauhaus, um, architecture, Einstein, um, science, to Brecht in theatre, Kurt Weill, you know the incredible art going on. Um, so, that's another long-winded uh, digression. But I'm not suggesting for a moment that uh, alternative comedy was quite such an extraordinary flowering. But nonetheless, Thatcher had begun to change the gears of British society in a way... That shocked almost everybody's living memory. We'd, we'd lived with the wonderful post war consensus where both the Tories and Labour had seemed to see community as more important than individuals, and there was a general assumption that the community and the health of the community was at the health of society. And Thatcher and Reagan in America don't forget, they also had a post war consensus. The Americans had the Roosevelt legacy the idea that the individual is secondary to the health of the community. Well, Thatcher and Reagan shattered that. They deregulated the city and said if individuals can enrich themselves pretty much in any manner they can, it will be good for society. Uh, and that was a massive change. And as you know, she destroyed the union movement. Um, you know, don't get. funny thing is, I, I do have respect for her. She was a woman of enormous political integrity. She did what she said she was going to do and she believed in it. I, I say this only because the current Tory leader, Boris Johnson, I find to be a more despicable figure by a very long way. Because whereas... Thatcher was a woman of deep principle, even though I disagreed with every one of them. I can respect her for that. Um, I think Johnson is motivated entirely by self-interest. But anyway, <laughs> I'm digressing. You didn't ask me that. But it is only two days after, after, the, after the election, so it's all feeling a bit raw. Um, yeah, I think that, uh, for me at least, it, the, the times I lived through as a young man shaped a lot of the way I viewed My art, and there's no doubt that there's a dialectical part of me, there's a part that wants to put my social principles into my work, which I think was fired by a period in which we've all felt very, very threatened. Um, And I think it's perhaps no coincidence that in the 90s, as life seemed, we seemed to, you know, Blair and John Major didn't seem very different to each other in many ways. Uh, You know, comedy and stand up comedy in particular kind of lost its the feel that it was there partly as, I suppose, a political tool. Not that any comic ever went on stage to do a rally. It'd be a very boring comic. But using your beliefs to energise your comedy. I still do it. They're not all bloody lefty or anything. They're normally just what I believe morally and socially. and what My own flaws are at the depths of my comedy. My own inadequacy. Um, But I always use what I believe to make my comedy. And I had a sort of lot to believe in the early 80s.
1: So, Don Ward's comedy store is always cited as the birthplace of alternative comedy. How important do you think that was in giving your generation the platform to hone the craft?
2: I think it was extremely important. There's a guy called Pete Rosengard as well. I always feel I got to credit him. It was sort of his idea. He went to Don Ward. Don Ward had the had the venue, and between them, they built the comedy store, which was a direct rip-off. They even took the logo from the American one, the LA store, and that's fine. Um, it was. Imitations of form and flattery, in the London Comedy Store was incredibly important. What previously had been a very disparate thing, this thing called alternative cabaret that Andy De La Tour led with Tony Allen and Pauline Melville and Jim Jim Barkley. Uh, there were a few kind of clowns messing around, you know, and and, and the beginnings of a sort of radical stand-up comedy. Of course, sales Sayles started in '79. I didn't start till '81. So oh, there's a there's a big pecking order there. Um, and I think the comedy still played an enormous role. I first played it in March 1981, and, and I compared it through the summer of 1981, and it was an incredibly vibrant, scary time. Um lot of, 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 I don't want to use the term yobs, but I think I'm going to have to because it was one of the few places you get a drink after closing time. So we didn't, by any means, have a lot of lefty liberal. There was an awful lot of gangs of lads looking for somewhere to drink and, frankly, wondering where the strippers were because it was the comedy store was in a strip club. The strippers ended at, at, at 10 and we'd go on at 11 or whatever, you know. Um, yes, the comedy store offering, as it did, a place for a lot of people to meet. I knew Rick Mayo and Aid already, but I'd never met any of the others I met. Well, actually, I met Jenny and Dawn at the comic strip, but only because I was at the comic store and I heard all about the scene. So yes, I think it played an enormous part. And, and now we have a massive comedy scene in Britain. I don't think the store did that. I actually think Saturday Live did that. The television show Saturday Live exploded the idea of stand-up comedy and alternative variety as a viable career option. And many, many, many um, venues opened up in the late 80s as a result of it. But the store was unquestionably the first permanent place where non-traditionalist stand-up comedy could find a place.
1: And then in 85, you secured your first hosting spot on Channel 4's Saturday Live. 86.
2: And I wasn't the host, but I was always... I closed the show. I was the last act. Uh, We had guest hosts in 86, but I was was a success. It was my big break. And when they came to make the second series, I became the permanent host. And in what way do you think...
1: That was sort of a generational rebellion against the traditional variety shows of the
2: time. Well, I must make this point very clearly. I don't think it was any sort of rebellion. I think all the people involved that I've ever known in Young One's Saturday Live, Black Annery, the the world I've I've worked in, particularly in the 80s and 90s, um, were, were anything but enormous fans of the entertainment that went before. We all loved you know, um, Hancock and, and Dad's Army, just as much as we loved, you know, the more more alternative stuff like like the Monty Python. I mean, obviously there was a political reaction against what had been, it's very easy to say sexist, racist comedy. Of course those comedians and those sketchers, they didn't know they were being sexist and racist. It was an attitude. Ours was a generation that called out something which hadn't really been noticed before and that was the sort of presumption of women as a certain type of person normally decorative sexualized black people as endlessly the immigrant the outsider this was the basis of a lot of comedy in the 50s and 60s not by any means all but a lot but i don't accuse most of the people who were doing that material weren't themselves racist it was a cult it was a time um and eighties was a good time in that it called that out i was very much very much a part of that. I'm proud to say I was I was voluble and and perhaps the most voluble. I did whole routines about it, about using the C word as an insult, about tits being being the funniest part of the anatomy according to pretty much all British sitcom and sketch shows at that time. But but as I say, having said that, that that was an, an awareness of subject matter in comedy. But the styles uh, and 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 the heroes. I mean, Malcolm and Wise were my greatest heroes. I loved Malcolm and Wise, and I still love them. And and uh, you know Les Dawson and Tommy Cooper and, and Tarby. You know, I mean, Tar- you know, they're, they're a great comic. I mean, I didn't like some of his material. I didn't like the way he voted. But hey, you know, we live in a democracy. I've since got to know him a bit, and obviously, a lovely bloke. You know. Um, so let, let's make it clear that there, there was a, a rebe- there was a, a, so- a socio political rebellion against certain styles of subject matter which we now define as racist comedy and sexist comedy and I'm proud of that and I still fight that fight because it's been lost again but um, in terms of style I used to say the young ones didn't break a single stylistic goal if, if you look at the goons or the crazy gang from the 1940s or as I always rather cleverly point out with my drama degree Aristophanes from the three hundred BC or whenever he was You know, toilet humour, crazy humour, being whacked over the head and surviving it humour. Just watch Laurel and Hardy, which was Rick and Abe's biggest. You know, I was Malcolm and Wise, but they never shut up about Laurel and Hardy. Um, So, yeah, that's my answer.
1: Okay. In 1987, I think, whilst on Saturday Life, you performed a routine about Benny Hill, which resulted in a writer in the independent newspaper stating that your performance was, quote, like watching an elderly uncle being kicked to death by young thugs. Looking back now, do you think that material was a contributing factor in his downfall?
2: I don't think I ever, ever, ever did a routine about Benny Hill. I did a routine about big tits. I don't think I even named Benny Hill. I said I'll never be a good comedian because I haven't got big tits because clearly the biggest joke in the world, you know, you wouldn't get many of those the pound, you know. And, I, and the routine ended, I think, very well by saying, I don't know how women get up in the morning, they must, you know, how do they get past their mirror, they could spend all day laughing at their tits. I said, oh, that's right, the final punchline was, that's why none of the women are ending the jobs in this country, or the senior jobs, because they're all sitting at home laughing at their tits. And in that line, in that line, I encapsulated, I think, quite a lot of truths about women in employment and the women's attitude to comedy. I think everything I said was amazing actually, that, and i no, am not amazing, it was surprising, because it was brave, and I was brave then, I don't know if I'm that brave now, I try to be, because it got the sort of reaction that I got from that old git that you're just hearing now, maybe it was a young git, but um, there was never anything personal about it, and it was a very, very reasonable point. The only time I ever, as far as I know, talked about Benny Hill by name, was in an interview with Wogan, when I was asked to sort of defend this idea that I was against these old comedians, and I said... That sexist attitudes do have, and do have a knock-on. Uh, they have an effect on society. And I mentioned something I did do a big routine about, which was the fact that judges were regularly blaming women for being raped in the 80s with impunity. Regularly, you were wearing a miniskirt and hitchhiking. What did you expect? That I, I quoted and named the judges, and I said, and perhaps this was a mistake, but only because I got my facts slightly wrong. I said, look. At the end of every Benny Hill show, he, he tears the clothes off women and runs and chases them round the park. And women are being told by the police they shouldn't walk across a park semi-naked. Now, I think there's, you know, anyway, this was spun as Benny, I'm blaming Benny Hill for rape, which I, at the time even I said was not what I was saying. But one thing I did get wrong, which is that I think... I can't even remember. It's the girls that chase him. He he tears something off, then they tear something... Then, then, and they chase him. Because he's an old perv, normally. He's an old perv, and they chase him around. But they do it semi-naked. Yeah. I think my point was perfectly reasonable. And I've had to live for an entire 35 years with this outrageous idea that I killed Bernie Hill or I chased him off ITV. I was fucking... Fought, 24 years old, as if I had any power over ITV policy. You have your time, Benny Hill have been at the top for 20 years. I haven't been able to get a gig on telly for, t- for, for 20 years. The last time I had a gig was in 1998. I'm not complaining but I've asked lots of times at my age, I've said, any chance of another Saturday live, any chance of me coming back on the telly? I haven't even been able to get on live at the Apollo. Mm-hmm. Your time changes, you're not fashionable anymore. So yeah, I feel pretty strongly about this. I felt that article, I didn't actually, I'd never heard that article, but I knew that I was, and when the Independent did their obituary, they basically said I killed him. Outrageous. I was a young comic mouthing off, and that's fair enough. And I think if Benny Hill couldn't take it, and I'm sure he could, then he's not the comic I think he was, because he was a brilliant comic in the 50s and 60s, and he did get lazy. And the comedy got lazy and, that, and ITV cancelled it in the end and everything gets cancelled in the end. Upstart crow has been cancelled and it was at the top of its game and I was cancelled. Morecambe and Wise only had eight, nine years at the top. I really get fucking annoyed about that, complete fiction. So there you go, there's my answer. You just said there about sort of
1: where he probably didn't have as much of a problem with it as probably what the media did. Yeah. Is that the, Do you think that was the major problem, that they were just acting as a catalyst for anything someone of your generation had to say about
2: Well, I was by far the most vocal and the most obvious. In fact, I, was, I used to say I was a one-man cliché because apparently telly's full of left-wing comics moaning about sexism. As far as I know, I was the only one doing it so directly and so clearly. I mean, there were lots of great comics that did things I didn't do and I did things they didn't do. That's one of the things I did do. Um, Benny Hill had been at the top a long time. The Benny Hill Show was... Utterly and totally tired. You just needed to repeat it. They'd done hundreds of them and they were all exactly the same. And good on him. It's been terrific. But it wasn't like Carry On, which was endlessly reinventive and in which all the women were funny. I just made this point. I mean, you know, occasion. I mean, Christ, I've had more... If, if, if getting slagged off by other comics kills your routine and Stuart Lee's killed me a thousand times and so's Alexis Sale and so's Jimmy Tarver, you know... I said something about Benny Hill which wasn't personal, which wasn't vindictive, it was a political point and I pointed out that whereas I wasn't objecting to women in comedy or women being funny for their bodies or sex being funny, I adore Carry On because the women in Carry On are hilarious and they're as strong and as inadequate and as sexually driven and as majorly sexual creatures as the men are. They're not just the impassive Objects of male sexuality, which is what they are in The Benny Hill Show. I said it then, and I'm sticking to it now. I don't think he was a a bad person. I just think he ended up doing some quite boring comedy, which I don't think was socially very relevant. But that was nothing to do with his demise. But me thinking it, the fact that it was true, was what was to do with his demise. But if you look at his earlier work, the guy was brilliant. Mm. He just got... Tie. We all have our fucking ties, As I say. If you can get me back on the telly, I'll be pleased, but I won't blame you for destroying my career if you can't. So
0: if you have that long at the top, it, you're
1: got to be expected to have a bit of a dip. at Yeah, like
2: well, as I'm always pointing out to people, Morgan and Wise's greatest years were 72 to 77. That, 71 to 77. They had some good years in the 60s, but they weren't at the top. Then at the 70s, they were at the top. And then, I know he died in 84, but they were already on a massive slide. You know, you can't keep it up forever. In
1: 1998, you starred in your self-titled BBC One stand-up show alongside one of your heroes, Ronnie Corbett. Exactly. What impact did his involvement have on the success of the series?
2: I really couldn't say. I mean, I was at the time, you know, the man from Auntie had got seven or eight million, and so did the the Ben Elton show. So, which incidentally was my last, that's my last TV gig. Um, Funnily enough, people are so anxious to knock down anybody who tries to talk seriously about anything that I got a lot of shit for working with. Ronnie Corbett, because apparently that was somehow hypocritical, having already, having slagged off Benny Hill, apparently it was hypocritical of me to then work with another traditional, I mean it's so mind-blowingly banal, I can scarcely even bother to say it, but it's true, I did get a lot, So apparently I was supposed to hate all the old guard, and here I was working with one, I, I've spent a lifetime banging on about Morgan Wise and Uh, Dad's Army because in the 60s and 70s just as in the 80s and 90s and since there's good and there's bad it's not all one thing or another and I I wouldn't have I wouldn't have wanted to work with later Benny Hill but I did want to work with Ronnie Corbett because I admired him enormously and I think it was a marvellous addition to the show and I was able to write some of his monologues and I got to write the last chair monologue he ever did so for someone like me who loves British variety I know almost nothing about history of American entertainment. I don't know about it now, but I mean, my goodness, I know about British variety, and I love all of it, but as I say, some of the subject matter should change. Of course it should. Yeah. There was a time when, you know, we, we could, in, with impunity, talk about Irish people as stupid. As, that That was a joke that literally was in every cracker in the country. Well, it isn't anymore, thank goodness. Yeah. Or Jews as, as misers. I've had plenty of that. Anyway, so... Um, it was a great, wonderful thing, and I, I got to know him, we became friends, me and Sophie had dinner with him and Anna on a number of occasions, just the four of us, and how lucky am I? So
1: the last question we always ask
2: everybody is, looking back at your career, what is your proudest achievement? Um, I don't ever look back at my career. I'm a totally non-introspective person. I don't really look at myself, I don't think about myself. There's an Ian Foster quote, how can I tell you what I think until I've heard what I have to say? And that's how I am about really my work and my life. It's it's ongoing improvisation. I don't, I'm not a very reflective person. But having said that, I've been asked this question quite a lot. And my answer is I'm proud that I have never put a piece of work before the public that I didn't think was fantastic. <laughs> it may turn out to be that it wasn't. But I did my best and... I followed the advice, Polonius, which I say whenever comics ask me, I say, when you go on stage, remember Polonius, above all to thine own self be true. Never say anything on stage that you secretly know is a little bit shit, a little bit unworthy, but you know it'll get a laugh. You're lying to yourself and the audience will eventually sniff you out and it normally won't take long. So don't use some little bit of dog whistle racism or a little nod and wink about disabled people or whatever. You know some stupid joke about empty toilets or whatever if you know underneath that you're basically it's unworthy of you because your comedy will be so much better if you force yourself only to be true to yourself to your morals and if you are a Nazi then crack Nazi jokes but if you're not then don't and if even if you're not and if even if you're just a normal person who secretly knows that it, it's a bit mean to slag off a group that aren't that everybody slags off. People go on. I've seen a comic come on stage and go, I hate dwarfs. And, you think, and he gets great. Yeah, and you, you, that's such a lie. Mm. And it's just not funny. And so do better. Yeah. So I've always tried to do better. So I'm pl- proud of that. Sounds. And then I, people say, oh, it's so pious. Well, you know, fuck him, if that sounds pious. Mm-hmm. I just think it sounds honest. Great. All right. Thank you Ooh. very much. Ooh, nice one. Nice to see you, mate. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Thank you to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you liked this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy. Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates on forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time.